Welcome to Protecting Your Assets, the show about protecting people, property, and most importantly, protecting your ass. I'm your host, Lucky Luciano, and I'd like you to join me for a fast-paced and often fiery discussion about security issues with my co-host, Brian the Angry Man Claimant. Whether we're piercing the veil of security, talking your duty of care, or raving about the latest technology, we'll share our thoughts on the issues, the trends that are impacting security today and into the future. So grab a coffee and join us for our latest podcast, and don't forget to like and follow us on our sponsor's website, brianclayman.com. And now let's talk about protecting your assets. Hello, folks, and welcome to Protect Your Assets. I'm your host, Lucky Luciano Cedrone, and with me is Brian, the Angry Man Clayman. Today's episode, we're going to be talking about what constitutes an effective security program and how do we go about building that? What are the key elements in creating that program so that you can effectively keep your business safe and protect your assets? But before that, as usual, we're going to talk to Brian about what's keeping him up at night. Uh, I just wanted to say, Brian, I think the last episode with uh, John Meacher, where we talked about fraud, the Really good, good episode, and I'm looking forward to, to bringing more uh, speakers on board. I know you're working on that, so I'm really excited at uh, taking our, process, our our podcast to the next level. Uh, so with that, I'm going to turn it over to you to say hello and uh, see what's keeping you up. Thanks, Luke. I agree. That was a great podcast with John Meacher, the last one. He's just a wealth of knowledge, and uh, he really opened up my eyes in terms of fraud. As I had said in the last podcast, I really thought it was a thing that impacted only rich people or corporations or you know uh, bad checks things of that nature it was so uh heartening and, and and sad to hear some of the stories of how people normal people innocent people naive people whose lives have got ruined uh so it was really good and john did yep. a great job so uh, really appreciate that i guess uh, moving into uh, what's in the news or what keeps up at night keeps me up at night it has been a very interesting uh, period of time with the inauguration in the states trump is no longer the president and it it's amazing how how noticing the the silence is the news is not uh, trump 24/7 all the time it's really interesting to put on the tv and not see uh, just trump's face all yeah. over the place or even talk about Biden. I mean, it's not the only story in there, you know, out there. So that's sort of refreshing. And it's not keeping me up at night. It's actually helped me sleep a little bit better. <laughs> so I'm happy about that. But a couple of things I do want to talk about is uh, I've uh, been seeing reporting the last few days, uh, Dr. Bricks, if you remember Dr. Bricks, she was with Tony Fauci on the U.S. Uh, president's uh, pandemic response team. And she was interviewed, I think, by CBS. And she was quoted as saying that uh, she really believes there were two sets of data that was out there. Mm. She said there was the data that was factual that they were tracking. And there was data where she said, I don't know where that data stream was going to, but it wasn't coming from her because she ran after Dr. Fauci left. She ran that program. It was coming from some other source getting straight to the president. And it was the stuff that the president was telling the American people. And it was really, she didn't use these words, but she insinuated it, it was lies. It wasn't factual. It was to spin a political story that the administration was trying to spin. And she's saying that how disappointed she is. Uh, there was some talk that hundreds of thousands of people may have died as a result of the fact that the wrong data was getting out there. And while I appreciate that she's bringing this to the attention of the public, the American public and the world, 
I really have mixed feelings in that a real hero, a whistleblower, is someone at personal risk and peril does the right thing, even if it may impact them adversely. She's a healthcare person. She's yeah. a leader. She's someone that uh, people in the U.S. and around the world, I might add, looked at what she was saying to decide what it is they need to do. And for her to come out now and say that I was aware that uh, the American people were being misinformed and to expect to be received as a hero, she doesn't get my vote as being a hero. The right thing to do would have been to challenge power at the time, to say these are not the numbers that we're tracking, if you know, and, and let uh, be liberated by the truth. It's almost as if keeping my job, my two hundred thousand dollar year salary, was more important than doing the right thing. Yep. I honestly believe if she and even Tony Fauci went out and called the uh, president out for the things he was saying that was wrong, they probably would have gotten fired. Yep. But they would have been heroes, and people would have listened to them and not the others. And the bottom line is that as public health officials. They have a duty not to the president. They have a duty to the public. They have a duty to their, their, their office. They have an oath of office. And it's just another example of where communications have failed so miserably in a crisis. And it's resulted in all sorts of hardship and unfortunately unnecessary death. I'm going to continue your, your topic of whistleblowers, I guess, of a sorts. But to me, I'm going to turn the lens back on on our own government again, because I, I, to your point, now that Trump's out of the headlines, I have more time to read about our own <laughs> idiot leader. And it really, it is, I mean, it's concerning and it's, it's comical on, on, on another level. It's so comical. Like you, it has to, you have to laugh at it or you just go crazy when you start seeing how arrogant this guy is and his party, quite frankly, because they're no different. The same way the GOP stood by and let Trump do what he wanted. I blame the liberals the same way. If they get wiped in the next election, and I doubt that that's going to happen because the Canadian electorate is, I don't know what they're smoking, but maybe too much weed these days. You know, they've created this monster and he's completely inept at, at his role. I'm so, I don't see any positive things coming from this guy. Uh, how he's handling China is disgusting. Catering to a communist country who has your own citizens in, in the types of conditions that they do, those two Michaels in, in prison over there on false trumped up charges. While he allows uh, Meng and her family to basically wine and dine them over here in Canada, it's disgusting. And I can't imagine, you know, as we pointed out last podcast, how the Michaels families feel today. But closer to your point about whistleblowing, how about Juliet Payette and the crap that's coming out of that office? Okay, here's a person who has allegedly, you know, treated her her employees with disgust and contempt, violates the harassment procedures or or policies that her own government professes to adhere to. Uh, And then you find out that Trudeau bypassed the whole selection committee. He basically appointed her because he wanted her there and that the committee wasn't even uh, asked for their opinion or participated in the selection process. So to me, it's just another indication of how arrogant this guy is that he just basically ignores everybody. So it sounds like the guy that we, we, we made fun of down south. You know, Trump completely ignored all his experts. And our guy does the same thing, and yet he rises in the polls. Trump got lambasted for doing the same type of stupidity. I don't well, get you know, it. Trump got lambasted, but only at the end. You know, he would yep. have gone out as a popular and perhaps, God forbid, successful president had it not been for the last month or two months of yep. his presidency. It's true. And what really killed him was that January 6th insurrection at the Capitol because 
even with the Biden not accepting the Biden win, okay, he still was tracking okay within uh, his base, within his circle. So Trump did it to himself, but I would agree with you. I think that uh, Trump and Trudeau, there are a lot of similarities on different ends of the political yep. spectrum, albeit, but I think their disrespect or contempt for the electorate. You know, I was talking, and I've had this discussion with my wife a lot about Trump, because as you could imagine, that's what, what we talk about in my house. Uh, <laughs> and, I, you know, my wife is not a Trump supporter, and she really doesn't like the guy at all. But, I, you know, I've always taken a position, chicken and the egg. Is the problem the leader, or is the problem the parties that allow the leaders yeah. to do what they're doing, that enable them, okay, that don't hold them accountable? Because... Trump and Trudeau are just a product of their time, okay? The people, the way the system is set up, at least as I understand it, is both in the states and Canada, you've got the parties are supposed to keep the leaders and everyone in check. And clearly in the United States, you know, with the three arms of government, you've got the executive, you've got the legislative branch, and you've got the judiciary, okay? Trump should never have been a problem. If all the others were doing their jobs, exactly, that's where the bigger failure is. Yeah. There will always be Trumps, and there may always be Trudeaus. And I don't even like to put our prime minister in that same bucket because, uh, you know, unlike the president, I don't think he's a bad person. I think he's unqualified, but I think his heart might be in the wrong place. Doesn't mean he's not dangerous, but he's not morally uh, despicable like I think the U.S. version was. But there will always be leaders, but the leaders, they have to lead. And yeah. if the followers don't hold them to account, this is going to continue to happen into the future. So uh, I, I really think now that Trump is gone, it's really interesting to see what the Republican Party is going to do. You know, it's interesting to see what the base is going to do, especially, you know, when we look at COVID's just getting worse and worse. It's yeah. striking people in the base. I cannot understand the fact that they are so mysticized or they're, they're so enamored by Trump. I just don't understand that, you know, I try and have an open mind. And I I often ask myself, is my dislike of Trump clouding the way I look at the world? And I try and say, okay, you know what? What are the good things he's done? Okay. I I listened to Hannity and Tucker Carlson saying, okay, have an open mind, Ryan. Because I am not a a left guy. I'm not a liberal. I'm not a uh, Democrat. I I really am not. My anger, this isn't to me a left-right thing. This is a despicable person thing. My dis, my contempt for Trump is as a person, not as a Republican, but it is very upset to see the other people that uh, put uh, their duty and their moral obligation aside, and yeah. it's the team above all. I mean, that's really disheartening. And we're seeing that in Canada a little bit. You ever watch Question Period? The way the, mm-hmm. the, the, the buffoons and the... Uh, you know, the backbencher, yeah, 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 you know. like seals. Like, like seals. It's just ridiculous. You know, score one for our team, score one for the other. Yeah. What, what about the Canadian public? They, you know? they don't care. They don't yeah. care. And and this woman is a perfect example. She had to resign. He should have fired her. We go back to those guys yes. who took the time off to go traveling when you're telling people to stay home. She should have been fired and her pension gone with it. There's no, there's no uh, account. There's no, what's the word for it? peril for them if they stay and they get fired or they resign they still get a full pension that most canadians will don't even make that money never mind getting it as a pension they will never make that in their lifetime i've always said that again 
someone who's an opportunist, like my wife and I, when we talked about Trump and how he was a terrible businessman of bankrupt companies and he did, uh, he screwed people, he didn't pay his bills, but everything he did was legal. Yeah. And I tell her, and she would get mad at me, yeah. I said, listen, it is just immoral what this guy has done. But it wasn't illegal. It's yeah. the way the game has been designed. He was yeah. playing it by the rules. So my real anger is not at Trump, is not at Trudeau, but it's at the enablers. It's the people that allow this to happen. Because, again, if you look at Julie Payette, the governor general, it's despicable what she's doing and what she's mm -hmm. going to get away with. But she was just playing by the rules. She didn't make the rules. But you know, they the, did. <laughs> it's there. It's there. But she didn't. People, but, it's the lawyers that created that system no, I, to self-fulfill their, their own yes. means. They're not there for, to make it better for Canadians. They're there I, to secure their own jobs. I, I agree. I agree with you. I think we're saying the same thing. So our anger should be focused at them, at the lawyers and the legislators and the people that allow the system yeah. to do these type of things. You know, I, I know bringing it back to police circles is a thing that uh, often comes up when there's a police officer involved in some wrongdoing, and maybe obviously he was a bad guy, did something illegal or immoral, and he's suspended with pay. And people get all upset about that thing. And they're looking at the cop and saying, you know, what a monster. He's not the problem. I mean, he yes. may be the problem because he did something illegal, but he didn't make the rules. And to take those uh, you, you know, benefits away from him, don't be mad at him. Be mad at the chiefs or the police service boards or the politicians that have made those rules yeah. or the courts that have uh, uh, when arbitration gets overturned by a court or by the arbitrator and it becomes case law. So, you know, I, I sort of put it into two categories. There are the people that are playing by the rules that are so, that may be despicable. But the bigger problem are the people that created the environment where people mm -hmm. that are bad can take advantage. And again, any contempt I have with you or any disappointment with Julie Payette is the fact that she was not a nice person by all accounts, okay? Yeah. But she didn't put a gun in anyone's head and say, make me the governor general. She didn't say, don't bet me properly. It's yeah. others that, you know, either enabled or look the other way. And that's where the problem is. Too easy to blame. You know, it's too easy to blame Trump. But a lot of people will say, well, you're coming to his defense. Trump came on the scene because there was something in society that needed or wanted a Trump. Yeah, And he exactly. exploited it, okay? So if we just cut the head off, it's not enough because Trump is gone, but Trumpism is here. It is. And, and that's everything I see from the Democrats worries me because they seem to discount that he's gone and he's gone. I, I just hope that they remember 80 million people voted for this guy. Those 80 million people are not all anarchists. They're not all terrorists. They're not all off their head. They, the majority of them are probably just frustrated to no end that nothing is being done to address their concerns, just like the people on the left have. The same frustrations and to discount 80 million people, which is basically half of those who voted is, is something is, is a not a good precedent or a first step to take in this new presidency and towards their goal of coming together and rebuilding that country for whatever it's worth. But that said, I want to move on to our topic of today because we're going to get sidetracked and we'll be on this all day. Um, I know. But, I noticed how you sort of got the last. <laughs> well, I'm supposed to. I'm the host. And you're, okay. you're my sidekick. And that's you remember your place. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> so we're going to get into the whole conversation about uh, what we're supposed to be talking about. Security. <laughs> what are we talking about? Yes, security. <laughs> And today we're going to be talking about specifically, you know, what makes an effective security program? What are the key elements in uh, developing a security program? 
How do we ensure that the program is successful? Put the ingredients in place to make sure that it's going to be work effectively. So I'm going to turn it over to you, Brian. I know you've got a, a definite process on this. I've used some of your approaches in my own previous lives uh, with other companies. I've used your, your same um, principles. So I'm going to turn it over to you to talk about what are the key elements that you believe are, are important to create a, an effective security program? Well, thanks, Luke. I, uh, it's nice to hear that uh, you've actually listened to what I've taught you and you've <laughs> used uh, my process, but they are registered trademarks and patents, and I don't ever – you've never paid any royalties, so I guess – You're we'll not paying about, me now, so we're even. <laughs> okay, I guess it works out. <laughs> You know, one of the things I've noticed my whole security management career, but especially since I've been a consultant the last two and a half years, is that often client will call and say, hey, you know, we want to uh, engage you to develop some policies, procedures, or we need an emergency management plan. We'd like to help you, uh, have you help us with an RFP for a new security guard service. And you tell them what's involved. They say, go ahead. And they believe that once they have their policy and procedure or the emergency management plan, they have a security program. And one of the things I realized I have to do as a consultant and do it better than perhaps I've done it in the past is I have to manage expectations. And I have to tell them that it's nice that you're giving us a PO to do this work. It's nice that you're going to cut a check for five, ten, twenty thousand dollars or whatever the case may be. But I want to manage your expectations. And I want you to understand is that you just started down a journey. And at the end of this uh, project, doesn't mean you have an effective security program. It just means you may have a new security contract or you may have a new policy and procedure. Effective security is more than just an RFP for a security contract or more than just $100,000 on a camera system. So the process or methodology you've uh, alluded to is uh, I've always believed that there's three key elements necessary in a well thought out and effective security program. And really the three core elements are people, process, and technology. And the people, process, and technology have to be anchored by a mission, a program mission. Why does security exist? Governance, how do we do security in the organization? And policy and procedure. So unless you have the people, process, and uh, technology, which are the ingredients and the mission, governance, and policy procedure, which is the recipe, you can't succeed. And when I talk to people, what I talk about is really the human capital, the people behind the program. It could be from security guards to the security managers or the environment that you're operating under, if it's in property management, the various property managers and asset managers, the people that are stakeholders in the program, if it's in a corporate uh, security environment, the people that are stakeholders, the other department heads, they are the people element. When I talk of process, it really is, what is it we want these people to do? And process really is the policy and procedure. It's the protocols. It's, I've got this human capital here, and this is what I'm going to uh, expect them to do. This, These are the parameters under which they're going to be operating. And the technology is just the tools that they need. If I give the example of a fireman, if you're a fireman and you have a uniform and a hat that says fire, but I don't give you a fire truck or a hose or a fire extinguisher, you're not going to be as effective because you don't have all the tools and the accruements that you need to do the job. So 
the technology would be things such as cameras, alarm systems, if you're a security guard, uh, mobile, uh, like vehicles to do patrols if you need them, the different tools you need to succeed, those three things have to be in place working in an integrated fashion in order to have a holistic program. Absent that, all you have is parts of a program. And often, if you, uh, again, to use the example of the human being, your heart is very important. But a heart without a brain or without a stomach is not a person. It's just a component. Everything has to work together. And that's what's important for our listeners to understand. Security is more than just guards. It's a whole bunch of things done at the same time, done properly. Yeah, and it's uh, it really is the three elements interwoven and connected together. You don't, you can't do one without the other, as you point out. I find it interesting, and we've been we've been involved with some of these RFPs, and we've we certainly had conversations about them where um, a, a vendor will come in, and let's say we're talking about guarding, and they'll come in and they'll try to sell us or the client on the benefits of camera systems to replace guards in certain areas. And you know, basically remote monitoring, remote monitoring, which has its place and is effective in in a number of you know, depending on how you deploy it and what your purpose is. Going back to your mission statement and all that, it can be effective. But when you you approach a client with the objective of replacing one of those components with one of the others, I think you're already undermining your position. And basically, a smart client uh, or customer should be able to pick up on that fact and basically push back. And we've done that in meetings. I remember us calling out one vendor, uh, basically suggesting that, you know, the cameras were going to do everything for the client. And and we said, well, what happens when that lady's getting mugged or raped in the, in the parking lot? Who's going to respond, right? You've got no yeah. physical guards on the premise. So there, that, I think, is, is the key to being successful is how you into, how your how your program or how your uh, your people, your security manager, is able to develop a program that intertwines all three of those elements into one cohesive program that uh, addresses all the all the, the risks that, that you face at that property. Yeah, I think that's an important point. I mean, a mistake that I see time and time again, and especially more so now as a consultant, uh, most, people don't realize, consumers of security don't realize that there are a lot of specialists out there, but sometimes the specialists can't help you, you need a generalist. So what I mean is, for example, if you want to talk about total health. You want to talk to your general practitioner because if you talk to your cardiologist, he can't talk to you about the benefits of uh, proper posture or if your back hurts. He just knows about your heart, okay? And if you talk to a cancer specialist, he can't really necessarily help you with uh, your mental health issues or other things that might be important. The general practitioner is a generalist, and I think what you and I do and a lot of good security leaders do is we're generalists, okay? We understand the totality of the program. But consumers have to be aware that when you go to a technology provider and you say, I need better security, they're going to tell you about what technology can do for you. But most, more often than not, they don't have the understanding or the expertise of how the technology has to interface with those other elements. And a lot of people get duped. I can't tell you, Luke, how many times when I was at GWRA and I'd be visiting a property for the first time, let's say in Western Canada or Central Canada or Atlantic Canada, and I'm trying to sell the program and things we need to do only to have an asset manager or property manager say, well, we just spent $150,000 putting a new camera, so we're done with security. And I'd have to sort of you know, walk them back and say, well, I'm glad you did that. 
but you're not done with security. You no. just started the journey because unless you have a human, a person who's trained and skilled watching that camera and analyzing the data feed, all you've got is very expensive toys throughout your complex that are accomplishing nothing. And that's why people have to be very careful when they're buying a, a service. Uh, and with our practice, you know, we don't sell product, we sell information. So if, I, if, if you come to me and want to understand what kind of technology do you need in your building, I can tell you what you need and I can tell you why you need it, okay? And I can tell you what the consequence is if you don't have it. But I'm not going to tell you which product to get because I don't have skin in the game. I'm going to tell you at a strategic level what you need. When you call the service provider, I'm not going to mention any names, but when you call the service provider, he's an expert in the product, okay? But he isn't necessarily an expert in security. He knows what the camera sees. He knows how the alarm system works. But he doesn't know that that's the solution you necessarily need for your problem. And that's why, under managing expectations, it's important for your advisor, your vice president of security, your director of security, or your hired gun, the security consultant, to really sometimes say, hold on, we're moving too quick. I'm glad you're doing this, but you have to understand that there's going to be more that you need to do afterwards. It's, you know, counterproductive for me sometimes to do that because if someone in their head wants to spend $10,000 on a security policy and I say, well, you need much more, they're going to walk away and say, well, no, no, I disagree yeah. with you. And they're going to give the business to someone else. So it's not in my interest. And quite honestly, more often than not, or not more often than not, but I'm always uh, mindful of the fact that people are going to think I'm upselling them. Yeah. And, and, and I've realized over the years I'm not upselling them. When you come to a consultant, when you go to your vice president of security risk management, if it's an in-house position, his job is to walk you through and tell you what you need to know, right. not what you want to know. And most vendors, and you just ask yourself, most vendors aren't going to tell you you don't need a $100,000 camera system if you're coming to, to them to buy a $100,000 camera system. You have to realize that because everyone has a different agenda. And not to say that the security consultant generalists like me and you are better and more moral than anyone else. But our agenda is to sell you information. Uh, uh, the, the sales guys are to sell product, both noble, but they're different. Yeah, it, it really comes to me. It really comes back to that whole solutions based selling that I'm trying to educate the, the, the community on. Certainly, you know, now that I'm on the other side of the, the fence, I'm trying to get salespeople to understand that approach better because to your point they've been geared for so many years and that is across all industries not just specific to security but you know if you're accustomed to drive to, to selling uh, a chevy then that's all you're going to sell you're going to try and fit that chevy to everybody's need when yeah. hey maybe some guy needs a ferrari some guy needs a, a pickup truck you got to be able to have the product first of all you got to be able to have the products to sell it for sure but more importantly you have to have the product knowledge to know that those other solutions are out there and then have the courage, to your point, certainly our jobs as leaders in this area isn't just to sell products. It's to sell a solution that's going to meet their needs. And that means sometimes you might have to say, you know what, I can't meet that need yeah. with whatever vendor I'm using or whatever product I'm selling. You're better off going down the street to the next shop because they sell what you need. And that takes a whole nother level of uh, integrity, character and honesty on the part of certainly the consultants like us to be able to say that because most of them won't they just want the, the immediate uh, you know resolution so that they can get their check and walk away sure. and then 
Five months later, the, the client's wondering, well, why do I have this Cadillac in my parking lot? I don't even use it. I don't, yeah. I don't, no, CCTV is a perfect example. Nine times out of 10, when we went to CCTV RFPs, the, the stuff that they were bringing to the table, we probably already had, you know, let's say 75% of those features in our camera systems at the time. Yeah. And yet yeah. we weren't using them. So, so why are we buying a new one when we don't even use the one we have? It is amazing how many times I'll look at a client's uh, technology layout and, and uh, you know, the, the client's interested in that uh, newest and next generation of newest and greatest. And when you look at what they've had for the last five or six years, they had those capabilities. They never turned them on. They never turned them yeah. on because either the salesman didn't tell them they were there or if the salesman did, he did, but it fell on deaf ears. And that's why, you know, I think our job or any security leader's job is to really look at what is the totality of what you need, what are the risks and threats you're trying to protect against, and how do we weave it all together, all these different elements? Because, you know, in our consumer society where everything has to happen right away and very quickly, building a cohesive security program takes many, uh, there's many steps, takes time, and takes money, and takes a plan. And a lot of people just don't have the patience to do it right or to plan it out, so they buy a solution. You can't buy a solution. You engineer solutions, yeah. okay? You build solutions. You don't buy a solution. And, and uh, go on. Well, I'm just going to add, the, and the danger to that, uh, in my experience, Brian, has been once that decision has been made, usually by people who aren't security professionals, uh, let's say procurement is a big player, right? They pick yeah. the, the cheapest solution. And now for you to go back and tell them that that solution doesn't meet their needs or that they wasted the money, you know, they're going to have to go back to their bosses and say, well, you know, that's, Five million dollar access control system we put into the system, it's not meeting our need. We're gonna have to rip it up and put in a new one. That's just not gonna happen. So it's no. very difficult to fix the problem once it's already the mistake's been made. You know, one of the things that uh, we've done in our consulting practice just in the last six months or so is in our proposals, there's now a standard opening caveat, if you will, just or, or in the introduction, we talk about what constitutes an effective security program. And we talk about the people, process, and procedure piece that I open up with, talk about mission, governance, policy, and procedure. And we say it has to be holistic, integrated, working to create a, a, a force multiplier effect. Then the next line says, under this proposal for us to provide a, to do an RFP uh, to engage a new security service provider, it's important that you understand that the proposal will only address one of the key elements. Okay, and we want you to understand that unless the other elements are addressed as well and in place, you will not get the solution or uh, you will not get the result that you're expecting. And we put that in writing because I want to be abundantly clear to the client that this is why I'm saying, you know, this is why we're proposing what we're proposing. And this is what uh, these are the shortfalls if you do part of it and not all of it. I want to educate the clients. I see our job, my job, is to be an educator and to educate the clients of what effective security risk management looks like and how they get there. You know, we had a client, uh, a really great client, I think, that we've done some work for in Eastern Canada. And when we started that relationship, it was very, uh, it was a very defined mandate to put together a, a policy and procedure in respect to a certain aspect of emergency management. And as we talked with the client, we sort of realized that there was an expectation that this would help them ensure they had an effective, cohesive security program. 
and we sat down and talked with the client and we said, you know, what you're asking for is important, but it's just one element. And we said, think of this as a journey. You're starting in this on this journey. It will not be over once this project is over. As long as you understand that you've just started the journey, but there's other steps necessary, then I think there's value that we could bring to you. But if you think that once I've done this, and then we're going to move on to other things, okay, non-security, we're going to look at tax law, we're going to look at uh, uh, renovations and things like that, you're not going to be happy because you haven't accomplished what it is you're trying to accomplish. So, I, you know, I think it's really that important that, you know, going forward, claiming and associates, we're not going to enter into a, a contractual relationship with any client unless we tell them, this is where you want to get to. This is what you're actually doing in this phase. Understand that it is a journey. And if you think that by uh, us completing this project, you've now checked off all the boxes and have an effective security program, that may not necessarily be the case. Manage expectations is really important. And that's where we've talked about that in season one. I think many security managers fail. They're scared to look the client or their employer in the eye and say, yeah. You're wrong. It's not enough. We got to do A, B, C, D, and you got to have those hard discussions if you're truly going to bring value. Yeah, you definitely have the discussions, and they have to be willing to listen uh, because there's too much. There's too much of that. You know what you're saying is so prevalent in the in the industry. You talk about the people. We've talked a lot about people uh, resources in the past, having the right person, the right credentials, the right uh, profession, um, and technology sort of speaks for itself in the sense that. You know, you want the new systems, they achieve more things, they, they, they're they driven towards a solution. I think one of the ones that often gets overlooked is the processes and policies piece, because I think, you know, as you started off this podcast with, uh, you mentioned the policy as an example, where, you know, they, they get it done, they'll pay their five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 to get a policy on whatever, let's say active attackers is a popular one nowadays, and then they think that that's it, right? They've got it written, you signed it off, and we're good to go. They don't know that there's got to be some testing around that. There's got to be training around that. There's got to be ongoing revisions of that. It's not just a one and you're done type of approach. And that seems well, the most popular approach to, to policies and procedures when it comes to security and probably a lot of other uh, professions as well. Is The belief that once it's done, you can put it on the desk and you're done. Move on to the next thing. It's just another check mark. And that's just not the reality. In, in fact, you're, you're actually exposing yourself to more liability because you've created the document. So there's a recognition that you've yes. got an issue there. In this case, that's active attacker. You recognize that there's a potential for active attacker to happen in your premise. And then by walking away from it, you're basically opening yourself up to opportunities because things will change. The, yeah. you know, technology changes, risk changes, and you've got to stay on top of that. Well, it's the classic definition of negligence. I've always maintained it's better to have zero security yeah. Don't spend any money on it. Don't have any guards. Then to spend a million dollars a year on technology on guards that uh, clearly are not meeting the mark, where you know that active attacker is a possibility if you manage a shopping mall or an office tower. So you have a, a pr procedure or policy on that, but you either have guards that don't have the skill set or the ability to respond to that type of a situation, or you've got the best guys in the world, maybe former U.S. Navy SEALs or Canadian commandos, but there's no policy or procedure yeah. for them to follow. And then we're at the end of the day, when we're sort of debriefing after an incident occurred, well, why did he do that? Because we didn't tell him what to do and he was winging it. Yeah. You know, what amazes me also is this notion on the part of a lot of guard companies and a lot of uh, uh, property managers, certainly, 
is whereby, okay, here's the binder of policies and procedures. Mr. Cedroni, welcome to our building. You're our new security guard. Read these and sign here and think you've now covered yourself because yes. we've got Paul's in their train. No, that's just a cop-out. And again, this is what I tell my clients, because often they'll tell me this. They say, well, the guard companies developed the policies and procedures, so we're good there. And I said, well, have you read them? Well, no, no but the guard company knows what they're doing. And I said, well, why, no, would, they you don't. Think they, why would you think that? <laughs> perhaps they do, or perhaps they don't. Type thing. But even if they know what they're doing, it's your building. And at the end of the day, it's you that's going to be have to yeah. account. Yeah, and it, that's an important point that you can't overstate that enough because, uh, you know, I've read case laws in out of the states where the, 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 the presiding judge specifically noted the fact that because the client didn't approve uh, on the policies and procedures that their contractors were, were, were operating by, by definition, the fact that you've hired them. Says that you approve it, and so right. if their belief, and I can tell you, like you know, to our listeners, there I had a vendor, and doesn't matter who that vendor was, but I can tell you, they came into a, it was an RFP for guarding services, and they stood up in front of a room full of executives to tell us that you know they were go, their guards were going to take care of business in quotes, regardless of what the client wanted. So I mean, it, it sounds like if you think about the seriousness of that statement, they're basically saying that they will operate by their standards and procedures, regardless of what our contract was telling them to do. And so as a client, if I'm telling them to, let's say, observe and report, which I, you know, everyone knows yeah. I'm against that, but let's say as a company, that's my position is observe and report, but the the vendor position is that they will take care of business which means laying of hands if something goes out of hand yeah. and they start using force and that leads to an injury hey guess what the client's responsible because you didn't tell them not to do that at least you better have it noted it somewhere explicitly in writing otherwise you're going to be held to that well i think noting it is the first start but <laughs> the thing is you should be doing kpis on a monthly yes. or quarterly basis you say hey what are you doing I mean, you know, I, I don't know what company you're talking of, but I had the same example years ago when I was in my other job, and it was one of the largest companies in the world that we were dealing with at the time. And I remember we were talking about arrests, and we had we classified buildings by uh, public police model, private police model, mm -hmm. security guard model. And it was what we classified as a private police model, meaning that there's a lot of things happening in this building, so security has to do more than observe and report. They have to be prepared to intervene. They need the training, the skill set, and the understanding of the law so they could operate within the boundaries of what the law allows them to do. So that meant that these guards were expected to make arrests to understand the law. But there was a policy statement, and the policy statement basically said that notwithstanding what the criminal code says in terms of your arrest authority, okay, uh, our policy is that you have to be able to articulate why you had to make the arrest and why you couldn't have waited the 5, 10, 15 minutes for the police to attend. And unless you can clearly articulate that, then the arrest is not to be made. And I remember having a discussion when they kept making arrests. The guard company said, well, we take care of business. It's a legal arrest, and that's the way we operate. And I pointed out to them, it doesn't really matter what you think. What I've asked you to do is not illegal. It's not immoral. It's the way we do it. It's yes. within the provisions of the law. Okay. So your vote doesn't really count. Furthermore, your actions are affecting my brand and, and reputation. Right. I have to uh, articulate to stakeholders, to the press, to our tenants, why there was a fight in the courtyard because the guard was making arrests. 
I'm not saying it wasn't legal, the arrest. What I'm saying is it was not arrestable per our policy. And this is important. Policy can't trump the law. So, yeah. for example, if the law says you can't make the arrest, but the policy says you will, no, you can't. That's illegal and you, there's going to be a world of hurt. But policy can't say the law is telling you what you can do, not what you must do, or in many cases not what you must do. Right. So we're saying up to that limit, this is how we're going to interpret it. And the, the provider has to do it because at the end of the day, it's on the client wearing it. They're getting sued. You never heard that it was a ACME guard that made the arrest, but Cadillac Fairview or GWRA has been sued for $600,000. It's the property owner's reputation gets tarnished, not the guard company's reputation. So I think it's important, again, buyer beware. There's a mistaken belief, well, I've dealt with the guard company, I've dealt with the technology company, I've even dealt with the consultant, not my problem. I can use for you. Even when you're dealing with my organization, as good as we are, probably the best out there, you better challenge us. Because when you accept our report, okay, you now wear that report. Now, I wear it with you, and I'm going to stand up for you. But if we have given you information that is so obvious to be wrong, and you go with it, and there's a tort, there's damages that are uh, befallen another person yeah. as a result, okay, it's you're going to wear it. I'm going to wear it also, but no one's ever heard of Brian Clayman. Everyone has heard of General Motors or Apples or Cadillac Fairview, and that's the reality. So you can't say, well, I called the guy and I thought he knew what he was doing. you got to do your due diligence as well. Exactly. So I'm going to summarize our conversation. It's really It's been a really good uh, discussion. I, th I think we've brought out some good points that, that business leaders certainly should be aware of. I just want to encapsulate everything before we, we uh, start heading towards the end of our, our time here. Um, the three key elements, people, processes, and technology, you need all three of those intertwined, working together, uh, supporting each other to effectively build the program. But the underpinnings of that, you've got to have a clear mission statement. And I'm going to give you an opportunity, obviously, to summarize. But that mission statement drives the other three elements towards achieving that end. Policies and procedures got to be in place supporting that, that program. But the most important thing I think I, I'm going to touch on in my sort of summary of, of our discussion is the governance piece. Um, you know, we've alluded to the point that you've, as a client, you've got to be involved with your contractors. Just because you signed that contract doesn't mean you, you get to walk away. And I think that that's very important because, again, I think it's overlooked often. So many times I've had privilege, if you like, of going to properties who had some issues or, or are having issues. And when you start digging into it, you're like, okay, well, the vendor is offering biweekly meetings. The vendor is offering KPIs, you know, performance uh, indicators. They're, they're offering uh, letters, summaries of what's going on. I, I know because I'm getting those. I get copied on those. And yet we're not getting traction. Why is that? And then you find out that, well, you know what? They're actually not meeting with the vendor. It's not a priority. Or the security manager by himself is the only one who meets with the vendor. And so the arguments or the challenges sort of stop at that level and they don't get the visibility any higher. And that I think is a real problem with not successful programs because the communication is very limited to just the security piece and it's really not getting the visibility up the chain that it should. And I know you're going to say, you're going to say, well, that's the security manager's job, but I think it's a lot more complicated now. We've talked about that in the past as well. I think it's, it's more convoluted than that. There's a lot of people with their hands in the cookie jar, so to speak, a lot of eagles, and it's very difficult for that security manager to 
get the support he has, but he has to be involved. That governance piece has to be in place for it to be successful. Yeah, I'm not going to challenge you because, you know, you're a lost cause and I'll never <laughs> never get you to see it my way on that piece. But, you know, fundamentally, I agree with what you said. Uh, you know, I would just add to it is think of it as an, eco- an ecosystem. If you look at the human body, okay, if you look at the anatomy of your human body, you need the muscles and the nerves and the organs to be healthy, but you need them to be working together in order to have a healthy, happy human being. Well, a security program is the same thing, and the ecosystem requires people, process, and technology, and that's the ecosystem that needs to be in place. And then the DNA is the mission, the governance, and the policy and procedure. And I agree with you. Governance is probably, you know, once you have the key ingredients, the people, process, and technology, then the next important thing is governance, because if you you want to sell fresh lobster, but you only have salmon, you had the wrong ingredient. You need the right ingredient to have fresh, good lobster. Well, to have security, you need people, process, and technology. But the governance then is the way that you put it all together. It's how you run the program. And I'll tell you, governance is a word that people use a lot, but I've hardly ever seen it in place when it comes to security programs. You ask a business leader, a C-suite person, tell me about governance, and they'll talk about the board. They'll talk about how money is allocated. But when I talk about security governance, it's a subset of the corporate governance. And how are you going to run the program? How are you going to decide what risk or threats are important to deal with? How are you going to decide to allocate money? What is the criteria? You know, how are you going to decide in terms of oversight and consequence? That's all part of the governance model. And unless you have that, you don't have an integrated program. You just have a lot of things happening, but they're not in tandem. They're just it's just noise. The music requires the conductor to get the noise to create the music. So I know that you're a big person on governance. I am also. That really is the key. And the homework assignment I would tell our listeners is think of what the best security program you've seen and whatever your industry is. Is it real estate? Is it manufacturing? Are you in government? Look at where you've seen security that is really impressive. And when you have some time and when this pandemic is over, have a coffee with the VP of operations of that organization and ask them to explain the security program. And you will see, I am sure, that the ecosystem is properly defined, the people process technology piece, but governance anchors it all because, again, the ingredients without the recipe is just just ingredients. Yeah, yeah. and they have to, you know, governance, uh, you, have the, you need to have the right ingredients. You have to have the right governance. It's the same as a hockey team. You can have a team of superstars, but without a coach able to put them all together, working yep. towards the same means, you're not going to win any any games. So I'm not going to argue with any of that. I think uh, we can agree on, on on those points. I'm going to move towards closing our, our uh, latest podcast. We are working on another guest appearance because the feedback from uh, from our listeners has been very good. And the two podcasts that we've had with uh, with guests have been very well received. Uh, one, if you haven't heard it already, one is with uh, Michael Burgess on the use of force and the implications of, of, of that. Uh, and the last one was uh, with John Meacher on the uh, devastating effects of fraud on, on people. And, uh, you know, as I say in, in the um, description, you talk to people about frauds and their eyes tend to glaze over. They think it's a boring topic. But as Brian and I can uh, attest to now after our, our, our discussions with, with John, it's, it's uh, sadly more common than all those other things, first of all, and has a much more personal and direct impact on people's lives because it affects their wallets. It's not something that you can easily replace. So with that, 
I'm going to sign off for today's podcast. Brian, always a pleasure talking to you and uh, looking forward to our next uh, next podcast. Me as well, Luke. And uh, I know we're trying to line up a guest, a very accomplished uh, professional, law enforcement professional. And if it uh, comes together the way I hope it will, the way we hope it will, I think it's going to be a really great uh, podcast uh, coming up next one. Well, I think he's still waiting for you to offer him that million-dollar contract, but uh, we'll work out the details. We'll work out the details. Yeah, hey, <laughs> this one's not the million-dollar contract's not sponsored by Brian Clayman and Associates. <laughs> well, it ain't sponsored by me either. So. <laughs> okay, <laughs> then right. forget the million-dollar. We'll see if we can get him to do it for a Tim Hortons coffee. Exactly, and maybe yeah. a coupon. Yeah. All right. We'll okay. talk to you guys later. Bye bye. Take care, everyone. Bye bye. That concludes this podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening and will join us in a couple of weeks for our latest episode. Please remember to like and follow us on our sponsor's webpage, brianclayman.com, where you can leave us your comments and suggest topics you'd like to hear about in future episodes. Until next time, thanks for listening and don't forget to protect your assets.